Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Welcome back to the Lo-Fi Lectionary, the uh, mine and your podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. And hey guys, not, not to put too fine a point on it, say I'm the only bee in your bonnet. All right, and with that, we'll continue on. Um, so here we are, Luke 4. This is going to be good. Um, you guys, I'm so sorry that these episodes are a lot longer than I always plan. Kevin talks too much. I'm always self-apologetic about it, too. But um, this one might be a long one because there's a lot of new um, things that come up in the story that require a little bit of history and a little bit of going back to explain because I want to help, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've never read this before. Um, to help you kind of get something out of it. So we, uh, so if it's long, I'm so sorry, but um, for now, courage. <laughs> I hope someone gets all those references. So here we go. Um, Luke 4, let's just jump right into it. And remember, I'm reading from the, uh, the NRSV version of the Bible. So if you read a different one, it'll sound a little bit different, but here we go. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. <laughs> I love that little note there at the end. Um, okay, so here we go, right off the, the bat, just a couple sentences, but uh, we get some key themes from Luke jumping out already. The wilderness, again, he's out in the wilderness, and in fact, the Spirit has led him there. So again, the Spirit is being active with people in the wilderness, outside the power center. Um, we also get this uh, little note that uh, he was out there for 40 days. Um, 40, um, the number 40 is kind of a key um, number in, uh, in Hebrew culture at the time, um, where um, the number 40 kind of represents, when used as a number of things or uh, a span of time, kind of represents uh, a, a time, an amount of time that's enough. A kind of, an, an amount of time that's kind of satisfying or complete in its sense, especially in regards to um, preparing for something, for the, for something new to come, or a time when someone is experiencing some change or transformation. So for instance, um, if you've read the Exodus story, uh, you know that Moses himself went, went fasting for 40 days as well. Also, um, the Israel, the people of Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness um, in order to kind of be prepared, be changed, be transformed as they uh, went to go then enter the promised land. So um, the 40 years there represent kind of enough time to change and be ready. And 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 we think that that's what Luke is kind of cluing us into here. Um, uh, so Jesus kind of goes out for enough time to be prepared and be ready for something to come. Um, and he also, um, in doing so, is kind of painting Jesus as a type similar to Moses. Um, so whereas where Moses was a leader who kind of um, was raised up by God to lead people through an exodus, through a, a big movement away from something to something else, um, in, in a way that saved those people, um, Jesus is possibly, um, in the story, um, we're kind of getting included in that he is also going to lead his own kind of exodus, the salvation movement. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, fasting, real quick. Um, if you don't know what fasting is, it's it's just kind of when you go without something, usually food, for a certain amount of time. Um, and uh, in ancient culture, it was kind of a practice that people did in order to kind of cleanse themselves, purify themselves in some cases, but also to prepare themselves for some sort of revelations, you know, either a vision or a, or hearing something from a deity. Um, uh, it was also something that people did to kind of enhance their prayers. So if you kind of went without food and you were kind of hungry and stuff like that, you might kind of catch God's attention in a special way or arouse um, a deity's uh, sense of empathy for you. Um, it was also something you did uh, when expressing grief or tragedy or repentance for something you did. Um, so it could be any one of those things um, of the reason that Jesus is fasting. Um, during the time, particularly for people uh, in Hebrew culture, if you were fasting, it was often a time when you can set aside to kind of contemplate um, a piece of scripture or or um, or maybe even read from the Torah um, a little bit extra yourself or kind of seek new understanding for things. Um, and fasting itself as a practice was kind of more popular and it was, became more formalized as a religious practice after the second temple was built. So during Jesus's time, this is kind of when more people are practicing fasting and fasting was kind of added into, you know, religious ceremonies or holidays on a regular basis. Um, and it became even more popular after the temple was destroyed. So Luke's audience might be people who fast more often than usual. Um, 
And when you fasted, you generally fasted only during daylight hours. Um, so you might be able to break your fast as soon as the evening comes. Um, and it was not allowed on the Sabbath day. Now, what this means for Jesus's 40 day fast, it seems to be at least it, the, it seems to be said that he went without, with, he ate nothing at all during those days. Um, whether or not it's only during that's he ate nothing at all only during daylight hours or whether or not he broke a fast whenever the Sabbath came up during 40 days. Um, the Sabbath would be the seventh day of the week. We, 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 it's, it's not exactly clear, but it seems that Luke is just like, he ate nothing at all during those days. So I guess, um, maybe as his audience were supposed to just take that at face value. And when it is over, he was hungry. <laughs> Again, I just love that. Okay. Um, and during those 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil. Uh, the next part of the story is going to go into what that looks like in more detail, but, um, here we go. A quick overview of the devil. Um, here we go. We're going to get a little metal, um, here. So, um, the devil, um, if you translate the word, the Greek word, it's diabolus, um, it, which translates as, uh, the opposer, the accuser, the backbiter, the slanderer in Hebrew, it would have been the word, uh, ha satan as I butcher Hebrew continually through this podcast. Um, and this figure, um, uh, I mean, that word is used of people sometimes when people oppose or people slander or people accuse other folks. But when it's used as as a as not just Satan, but as Ha Satan, it's kind of um, used as, as a particular person or figure. And that appears very rarely in, in the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot of um, other Hebrew writings that kind of aren't canonized in the Old Testament. They start to use them a little bit more. But especially early on in the Old Testament, um, this, this person isn't really talked of or used very much. Um, and when it is, um, at least in his early appearances, he's always talked of as being kind of a servant of God, of Yahweh, um, that, that the, the Satan, the accuser, is part of God's royal court. Um, so in the book of Job, um, the, the, you know, Satan, the, you know, who will, you would later be, you know, called the devil, isn't really um, an oppositional uh, divine being to God, but is actually um, kind of like God's prosecuting attorney. It's kind of his job um, within God's court to kind of go around and find folks who aren't doing what they should be doing or something like that, and then to bring those accusations to God. Hey, look, look at this. Um, so in the book of Job, you have God boasting, oh, look at Job, he's so great. And, and, and you know, the, the Satan is like, hey, I bet we can catch him if you, if you do this and this and this and this. Um, and God has to kind of allow it to happen. This isn't a person who's active on his own part, acting against God. God kind of has to allow or empower or make room for things to happen. So it's kind of interesting. Um, post the exile, um, so if you look in, into, into Jewish history, um, after their, their, their exile and their return to the promised land um, before the time that Jesus is born, um, is when uh, the kind of thought and the theology or the philosophy or the history tradition of um, who this, um, this this Satan figure is kind of develops more and more, which makes sense because they kind of went through an apocalyptic event where there was like, oh my gosh, evil is crazy in this world and it's so strong and it's very prevalent. So maybe there's kind of, it would make sense that they would kind of develop a figure to kind of be the figurehead for evil in the world. Um, so you start to get development of this idea of um, the, the Satan um, not being kind of a member of God's court, but um, kind of transitioning from a role as a servant of God to being an actual oppositional being, a kind of embodiment of all evil and traditions and stories develop as to how this person came to be in that position and, and who is with him. And so you kind of get the development of the ideas of demons and things like that. Um, and the idea develops that there's kind of an active evil in the world that's in rebellion and revolt against God. Um, so, and as this develops, it kind of serves a dual purpose within their, their community. Um, it kind of explains the activity of evil in the world. And it kind of also allows for if someone else is responsible for all the evil in the world, then that means that God is clean and is pure. Like his goodness is untouched. It's not that God is responsible for any kind of evil in the world because there's this other person who's always trying to make a mess and is actively trying to work against God's will and purposes. Um, so by the time um, the New Testament folks come around, by the time Jesus is born, um, the you know Satan, the devil, is kind of um, viewed as having some limited authority or power in the world. He can kind of influence and possess people, um, you know. And the demons that we're going to see in the story coming up soon are as well. Um, and so the Satan is kind of somewhere between some sort of divine being and some sort of corrupt politician, <laughs> in a sense. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of contemporary scholarship um, will often conclude that, you know, demonic possession and the work of Satan is kind of um, in the stories is, is, is possibly just the way that the authors of these stories and the people in these communities experience things like mental illness, things like that. Um, but for the sake of the story, um, Luke and his audience would have kind of believed that the devil was a literal personal being. Um, and so I don't want to jump to, to, to any way of explaining that away, kind of to be more sensible to our modern ears a little bit, at least in the lectionary episodes, let's kind of take it at face value of what Luke is telling us. We don't have to agree with anything Luke says or anything the way that Luke tells the story, but we kind of shouldn't just jump too quickly to explain it away without at first, at least acknowledging that that's, Hey, we're doing this. They would have believed this, but we don't believe that. So we're going to say it's this, you know what I mean? We don't want to read anything into the text. Um, too quickly. So at least in Luke 4, as we read it today, we're going to take it as it is. We're going to be like, oh, there's a devil and there's demons. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to go with it. So let's see what happens. Let's jump back into the text. So the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. So there's the first temptation. There's going to be three. Um, and this one kind of looks like it's working on two levels. It works like it's just working on like a gut level, like literally. Um, Jesus is hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. So the devil shows up and is like, hey, go make some bread. Um, but there's also this, this little intro uh, to the temptation itself where he says, if you are the son of God. So it seems like the temptation is also questioning Jesus's identity. And so maybe... Uh, uh, the devil is kind of like, hey, um, yes, eat some bread, give in, eat some bread. But also, um, are you really the son of God? Do you really believe you're the son of God? Because if you are, you could do this. Um, and so uh, Jesus kind of answers and, and resists the temptation. Um, and in his answer, he uh, he gives a piece of scripture back to um, back to Satan. You know, one does not live by bread alone is, is, a, is, a, is a verse from an old piece of scripture. Um, and it's actually from a story. Um, in which Israel was was in the wilderness. So it's a perfect piece of scripture for Jesus to use. It's actually um, from the time when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and also as we go through these temptations, it's kind of interesting to note that Jesus was just in Luke 3 identified as a son of Adam. So kind of in the lineage. And so whereas Adam was tempted and tested by someone, um, by the serpent in the creation story, now Jesus is going to be tempted by the devil and at least in this first temptation, yes, Jesus gets it right. He resists the temptation. Um, and so there's the kind of tension in the stories you listen to. It is going to be, is Jesus going to succeed where Israel and where Adam, when they were in the wilderness or when they were tempted, did not succeed? So let's see what happens next. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So again, we get a two-level temptation. Um, uh, the devil is tempting him to uh, show religious devotion not to God, to his father, but um, but to him, the devil, instead. Um, and it's also just a base desire for kind of power authority. You know, the, the devil is kind of saying like, oh, it's been given over to me, um, which it, it it hasn't. Kind of in their tradition of, of looking at who the devil is, um, it hasn't been given to him. Like if the devil has anything, it's something that he's taken kind of by conquest. Remember, he can only possess things and influence things. Um, and, it, and it's kind of working an act of rebellion against God. So if, if there's, if he has anything, he's going to take it by power or by conquest, by rebellion. And so now he's saying, oh, Jesus, do you want this as well? So he's kind of inviting Jesus to, to take power, um, through kind of ill-gotten means as well. Um, and so it's kind of this question of, okay, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're the anointed one, if you're in this kingly lineage, how are you going to be king? Are you going to be king by power and conquest, you know, by rebellion? as well? You want to join me? And again, yay, Jesus, he he says no. Um, he resists the temptation because it's like, look, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So again, he's quoting scripture. So it's kind of interesting. Um, let's look on to the next temptation. 
Then the devil took him to Jerusalem. So again, to and from Jerusalem, everything. And placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. So uh, here we go. Third temptation. So the so the devil takes him to Jerusalem. Again, noting to and from Jerusalem, to and from the temple, everything in Luke. Um, and takes him to the top of it and tempts him to, um, to put God to the test, to throw yourself down. So that way God would make a big flashy show um, by sending angels down to catch him as he's falling. And, and everyone who's there at the temple would obviously see this and be like, oh my goodness. Um, so it'd be amazing. Um, uh, and here the devil quotes scripture. So that's kind of noteworthy. Or Luke is introducing the idea that you can use scripture the wrong way. You could be, you could have everything down in the religion and still get it very, very wrong, which is kind of interesting. Um, Jesus also quotes scripture and he quotes it again from a time um, when the people of Israel demanded a sign as proof of God. And he's saying, no, you're not supposed to put the Lord God to the test. And again, it is a two level temptation because Jesus introduces it as if you are the son of God. So he's help, he's trying to get Jesus to also question his identity and stuff like that. Um, but then also uh, the, the second level of, okay, so so make God prove how good he is. Make God prove how faithful he is. Make God um, make a flashy kind of show um, that people would love to see um, to show how much God cares for you. So um, so he's, he's tempting Jesus to demand a sign in the same way that Israel um, and, and people all throughout history have demanded signs of God. And Jesus says, no, you're not supposed to put your Lord God to the test. Um so there we go. So yay, Jesus. So like, ah, the devil is all frustrated and he leaves um, until an opportune time later. So we might see him again in the story. Um, so there we go. So those are the temptation stories. Really interesting. Um, uh, so we get this kind of first direct conflict between um, someone and Jesus. And it's between this 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 devil figure, the spiritual force of evil, and, uh, and Jesus himself always questioning his identity, which is noteworthy. Um, and just a quick note before we go on to the next part of the story, um, this next section is actually out of order. If you look at the reading carefully, um, the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to show up in his hometown and he's going to start teaching and he's going to experience some conflict there. Then after it, if you keep reading, um, it's going to be some stories about him going, excuse me, him going to a certain town called Capernaum. But in the first story, when Jesus is in his hometown, um, people are going to talk about what he already did at Capernaum. Luke is intentionally putting these stories out of order because what happens in uh, Jesus' hometown, what happens in Nazareth, um, as Jesus starts to teach, he's going to reveal like his thesis statement for his entire purpose and mission as the Messiah. And Luke wants to put that first. So again, um, I'm just kind of taking special note here that Luke... Um, as he's writing, as an author, he's writing a biography of Jesus, but he's arranging things in a very particular order for a very particular purpose. And that's just kind of, I just kind of want to note that that happens in the book of Luke. Um, because people back then wrote stories differently than we write stories today. Um, so uh, let's just take note of that together. Um, and uh, let's see what happens when Jesus starts teaching and reveals what his kind of mission statement as the Messiah is going to be. Then Jesus filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. And he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Aww. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. So um, we, we have a scene where Jesus is, is traveling around um, an area called Galilee. So that's kind of the county uh, he grew up in. And then he goes 
um, to the specific town he grew up in. He goes to Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue, which was their community kind of meeting on Sunday where they would meet to, to be instructed in the Torah, to hear um, from teachers and rabbis. And he kind of takes the position, the traditional place as a teacher himself. So um, he goes into the synagogue and uh, he, he uh, is handed the scroll. So they would have a community copies of different scrolls of the of the scriptures because back then, you know, they didn't have books that everyone had at home. If you uh, had a scroll, um, it was something that your community had to protect and keep safe. So um, because they were very expensive and very rare to have. So um they would hold it in the community in the synagogue, and uh, so the attendant hands him a scroll from the pro- from the the prophet Isaiah, um, so from what we would call the book of Isaiah. And Jesus goes ahead and opens it, and uh, he stands up to read, which is the traditional posture. And then when he's done reading, he sits down because sitting down is the traditional posture of teaching. Um, so he's in the synagogue, um, and again we have um, the this this Lucan um, code of or or key note of that Jesus is again filled with the Spirit. Um, and the spirit guides him and moves him to, to, to go and do what he does. And now he's led into town out of the wilderness and he reads from Isaiah. And this passage he reads from Isaiah is a passage about a future vision for Israel. And it uses a couple um, pieces of language when it says, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That was um, taken in Jesus's time to be language about the Messiah because Messiah literally means to be anointed. Um, so as people kept, looked back and read through these texts in Isaiah, they would be like, oh, when the Messiah comes, this is something the Messiah is going to be about and going to be doing. And then it uses language about, um, what's called the Jubilee year, which is one of the most fascinating. And I think, uh, most exciting things, uh, in the old Testament, um, this idea of the year of Jubilee was, um, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. And there would be what's called a Sabbath year, which would be the seventh year. And then there was a Sabbath of Sabbath years. So every 50 years, every 49, 50 years, there is supposed to be something. This is actually in the Old Testament law that everyone is supposed to do this. um, Something called the Jubilee year. Um, and in that year, there's supposed to be no farm work. You're supposed to let all the, everything lie fallow and only kind of eat from what grows naturally. Um, and there's, so it's, so it's, it's a year of rest. Um, but then also everyone's debts, if you owed anyone money, those debts were supposed to be erased. Um, so you're supposed to be forgiven. So if you got in a tight spot and had to borrow from somebody and all of your debts were supposed to be forgiven. Um, if you had to borrow so much from somebody that you ended up getting put in prison cause you couldn't repay them. Um, prisons were full of, of, of debts of, uh, debtors. Um, you were supposed to be forgiven and set free. Um, uh, any land that was ancestral to your people was supposed to be returned to you. So again, if you had to sell that land um, because you got in a big mess because either you made mistakes or calamity fell your people, um, that land was supposed to be returned to you. Um, and if you had sold yourself into slavery or indentured servitude, um, you were supposed to also be set free. So if you had any slaves or indentured servants for any reason, you were supposed to let them go. Um, so it was this amazing year where everyone was supposed to be set free from debts, set free from uh, from slavery, set free from servitude, to be able to return to their homeland and to be able to be ready for the next year to start, um, you know, their their own farm work, to be, uh, to, uh, to have kind of everything erased and everything just started over again. It was a, a complete refresh. Um, and it's this amazing thing called the Jubilee year. As far as I know, um, from what I've read, people have said, we actually don't know if this rule was ever followed because it's kind of a, a tough pill to swallow, um, to kind of just say, I mean, imagine today if all the banks every 50 years had to say, uh, no one ever owes anything, all the credit card companies and stuff like that. Um, it would be really tough. And if, uh, if, if, you know, mortgages were forgiven and everyone was just given a place to live and work for free, um, it would, it would, I think it would be really good, but it would also be really tough to have to figure out how to do as a community. Um, and so the language from, uh, this, this part of Isaiah is it's talking release to captives, set the recovery of sight to the blind, the oppressed going free. And then this year of the Lord's favor, which is Jubilee language is how Jesus, um, identifies himself as the Messiah. You know, he says, has anointed me, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, so Jesus does seem to see, does seem to identify himself as this anointed figure, this Messiah. Um, but then also tells us in choosing this text, what the program of him as the Messiah is supposed to look like. Um, so he's going to save people, but what does salvation look like? Well, it's social, political, economic reformation. <laughs> um, 
it's, it's, it's this unleashing of justice and forgiveness and favor on behalf of the people who need it most, the poor, prisoners, people who are blind, people who are sick, and people who are oppressed. Isn't that interesting? Because <laughs> um, I guess there could be all kinds of ways they could have expected the Messiah to work and things they thought the Messiah would be all about. And there's even ways that, okay, we should save this for our future conversation, but even ways that people today think that God, if he would show up today, would be all about. What does, how does Jesus characterize his mission? It's good news to the poor. Interesting. Um, let's go ahead and uh, continue on in the next part of the story. So he's at the synagogue and he's teaching and he's just said, um, scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and here's what they continue on. So the people heard him said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown, the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. We're going to get to the Capernaum story soon, but Jesus is going to do some pretty amazing things there, healing people, stuff like that. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, a famous prophet, when the heavens were, sh were shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except for the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. When the people heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Okay, here we go. Um, so, yeah, um... They've been waiting for the Messiah, this community. They've been waiting for God to send them a savior to do something, um, to kind of restore their 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 people um, and their community and their, their country and their religion. And they've been waiting, you know, maybe even for vindication over their enemies, you know, for success, for prosperity, possibly even for revenge over their enemies. And the two places that Jesus mentions in this text... Um, the widow at Zarephath and Sidon, and he talks about Naaman the Syrian as being people who received special care from God's prophets. Um, these are two places that uh, people in Israel at the time, uh, especially you know, or, in, or at least in Galilee and Nazareth, would have been in contention with because these are places where foreigners lived, um, who they kind of had some beefs with. Um, and so, to try and understand why people get so upset when Jesus teaches here when they're filled with rage. Um, let's kind of go back to the, to the beginning. So Jesus said, you know, is in his hometown, he's in Nazareth and he even declares, um, you know, no prophet is accepted in their hometown. I mean, and, and he goes on to explain, you know, you're excited that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the anointed one. And maybe you want me to do some amazing things here for you, some things to help you out, some things on your behalf, but I'm not going to, because, um, there's no use for me doing them. You're not going to accept me. You're not going to receive me in the right way. Um, you know, um, cause you're my hometown. <laughs> and, um, so Jesus is kind of laying out and claiming that, you know, they're not open to hearing or seeing him the right way. Um, that maybe they won't see past, um, the ordinariness of who he is. You know, I'm just Joseph's son, um, to see maybe the divine mission that's happening in and around him to see what the spirit is doing in him and through him. Um, Jesus is kind of laying the claim on them that they're kind of blinded by familiarity. Um, and he gives examples of these prophets, people who were also rejected by their communion. Most prophets in the Old Testament were not successful people um, in a certain sense. They were often always at contention and always kind of on the run of, um, of being in danger. And, uh, and these two prophets that he points out, Elijah and Elisha, go elsewhere, go to foreign people to get care and get help. And then in turn, you know, kind of help those people, heal them, um, you know, uh, help them out and stuff like that. Um, and so... Um, Jesus kind of lays, says that, you know, because you guys might not hear me right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to a bunch of people, people that you might not even like, people that you might not even think are, are oh, I hit my microphone there. Um, are we are we still on? Okay, good. There we go. Um, people who um, you may not even think are, are, are worthy or right or, you know, religious in the right way. Oh, and they're going to get good care from me. <laughs> um, so Jesus stands in front of his hometown neighborhood and says, the big thing that you've been waiting for 
God wants to give it to you, but you're not ready for it yet. And in the last story that we just read earlier in this chapter, Luke, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Luke has, yeah, Luke has Jesus quoting the Bible against the devil in conflict. Now he's quoting scripture again, but not against the devil, but against his hometown. And it makes them furious. Um, so there is this kind of certain sense of you want to make religious people mad, use the Bible to show them that they've been reading the Bible may be wrong. Or um, use the Bible to show you know them how non-religious people um, are going to get it better and more than, than maybe even they are. And um, use it to... Uh, <laughs> to tell them um, that God maybe isn't primarily interested in them in being their God, but in being everybody's God. And it's going to go show favor to people who they think maybe deserve it the least. That's really fascinating. Um, so when they hear this and Jesus kind of takes a stand against them, they get so upset that they try and kill him. Um, so this is a turning point in the story where Jesus gets kind of, um, you know, his first moments of opposition and resistance, um, both by the devil and then by people in his hometown. But it's interesting to note that who tries to kill him first? It's not the devil. It's the people in his neighborhood. They try and take him to the edge of a hill where they would toss him over. Um, this is the traditional um, process of how they would stone someone in the Old Testament. They would toss you over the hill and then drop stones on you. And somehow Jesus escapes. It seems to be that they, they are able to get him to the edge of the hill, but it says, but he passed through their midst. So whether this is kind of some sort of supernatural help that he kind of phases through him, you know, like Kitty Pride style, or whether um, he just finally, you know, gets gets away um, just by his own volition, you know, finds a way to escape. Or maybe, um, you know, but when they get to the moment of actually trying to kill him, maybe they they relent at the last moment and let him go. It's not really clear, but he escapes through their midst and he goes on his way. And let's see what happens next in the story. Continuing on the text, he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent! Come out of him! When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done him any harm. They were all amazed and kept saying to one another, what kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. Quick note here, and then we're just going to continue on, but a quick note. Um, we're contrasting this to uh, the story that we just read in Nazareth. Even though, remember, um, it seems like the, what he's doing here in Capernaum actually happens before. And the people in Nazareth who ask for him to do something special are going to be maybe thinking about of having heard what he did here in Capernaum. But it's a quick coast. Let's quickly contrast what happened just here, just now to Nazareth. The demons correctly identify Jesus as the Messiah, and they know what he's there to do. And the people here are delightfully surprised at what Jesus says. They're amazed, which is a, a, a code word in Luke. It happens, it comes up all the time. Um, it seems like their unfamiliarity with Jesus is a bonus. So let's go ahead and continue on right away. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately, she got up and began to serve them. As the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! That's my demon voice. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Messiah. At daybreak he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowds were looking for him. And when they reached him, they wanted to prevent him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news to the kingdom of, of the kingdom of God to the other cities as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. Okay, so here we go. We um, Earlier we got the devil for the first time. Now we kind of get demons for the first time in this section of the story. Um, demons would have kind of would have been beings that were... Um, 
were kind of, I guess, lesser to the devil, but kind of joining him in his rebellion against God. Um, again, Luke's audience would have believed in them. So let's just deal with them as they are in the surface level of the story. So um, there's this kind of magical spiritual conflict uh, moment that happens when uh, Jesus gets to Capernaum. Um, he's teaching them on the Sabbath in the synagogue as usual. And, um, and, you know, a man of the demon runs up and is like, let us alone. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy Son of God. Um, I'm sorry, the Holy One of God. Um, and uh, what's interesting to note, um, just a, a key moment from history, um, when people engaged in, in magical conflict over each other, like in spiritual conflict, um, using their name was a way to try and gain control over them. Because remember, language and speech were, were, were dynamic um, in their culture. So if you kind of use their name, that kind of showed that you had authority or control over them. So when... Um, you know, uh, when, uh, people tried to exercise demons or when people engage with things like that, you would try and use the other person's name as a way of kind of overthrowing them or, or putting them off kilter or maybe even gaining control over them. So, uh, whenever, uh, these demons kind of, um, engage in conflict with Jesus, they're always, you know, I know who you are. Um, you know, it's showing his identity, um, talk, telling, you know, you're Jesus of Nazareth, you're the Holy one of God. You're the, you are the son of God. The second one in the story says, and that could be a way of them kind of trying to engage in conflict to kind of drive him away or get control over him. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but what is interesting also is what the demons, the demons in the story always correctly identify Jesus, which is just kind of funny. Um, cause so many other people in the story are always kind of confused about who Jesus is. Um, and, uh, Jesus silences them, um, which always seemed kind of weird to me in the story, but it could be a way of trying to take away their power. They know you can't speak over me with me engaged in this conflict. Um, you're going to be silent. You're not going to engage in, in you're not going to control anybody actually. Um, um, so stop using my name. Um, I win. Um, so he, that could be a way that he's just kind of trying to, trying to take them out, um, from their feet. He's sweeping the leg. <laughs> I guess you could say. Uh, so Jesus doesn't use any. Um, what's interesting is that in contrast to other kind of magicians or exorcists at the, of the time, at his point in history, he doesn't kind of use any magical tools, any kind of magical plants, any kind of magical spells over them. You know, kind of just words, you know, just solely just displaying his power just by being like, no, stop, get out of him. And so that's why people are all, ooh, amazed because um, they're like, oh, he speaks as someone with authority. Um, you know, and what kind of utterance is this for with authority and power? He commands unclean spirits and out they come. Um, so that's why people are a little bit amazed. There's not a lot of hocus pocus to it. He's just like, nope, stop, get out. Um, and then, um, Jesus kind of does the same over, um, someone's illness. So they go to Simon's house and his mom is sick and he, he just like how he rebukes the evil spirits. He rebukes the fever, which I just think it's kind of funny. He reprimands it, bad fever, get out. Um, and sure enough, the fever leaves, um, and she stands up and she serves them, which, um, would have been, um, kind of what, um, that the head woman of the household would be, would be doing. She was in kind of charge of the household and making sure that everyone ate and stuff like that. So that's what she gets up and does. So right away, she's able to get, she, you know, able to do, um, she's able to serve. So it's kind of just a way of Luke clearing in that. Yeah, immediately she was healed. Um, and, uh, and this kind of are, are a couple ways of Jesus revealing, um, how the messianic mission that he outlined in the, his moment in Nazareth is kind of being lived out. He's immediately going and he's, he's taking care of the oppressed and he's healing the sick, um, you know, bringing sight to the blind in a sense and stuff like that. So this is the first moment that we get where he's really kind of putting that into action. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and so, um, uh, Jesus goes, uh, he needs to take a, take a break. He needs to rest for a while and he doesn't go to somewhere else in the city, um, to kind of get some comfort. He goes back to the deserted place, to the wilderness. Interesting. But that follows very much in the theme of Luke is that kind of being a place where, um, you go to prepare and where the spirit really moves and then sends you back into to go do some work. So that's kind of interesting. And the people try to keep him there, um, uh, he's done some amazing things and who could blame them? Um, they, they, they should want him there. Um, cause it's, it's, he's doing some amazing stuff, but Jesus says, no, he doesn't kind of want to stay where he's praised in contrast to where he is in Nazareth. He needs to keep going cause he's on a mission. He has to go spread the good news, um, to people all over the, all over the, the land. Um, so it's interesting that he chooses not to stay where he's really loved and appreciated. I find that interesting. So there we go. Um, that's the end of Luke four. So now that we're at the end of the text, let's go ahead and dive into our uh, our lo-fi questions. So question number one, in Luke 3, what is God like? And this is where it's going to get kind of tricky, because um, if you're following the story, Jesus is the son of God. 
Um, you know, a lot of people have debated exactly what that means and stuff like that. But the but in in Luke's story, it's you know the spirit comes over Mary and is born. You know, so it seems like Jesus is is the um, is 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 a divine person. So as we kind of continue to answer the story, how does Jesus presenting us of what God is like? We're going to really look at it through the lens of what Jesus is like as well. Um, there's going to be some interesting interplay because Jesus, um, the Son of God, um, is going to have some interaction with. God, you would guess you would have to call God the Father, um, but um, but for this story here, we actually don't see God the Father really doing much. We see a lot of um, Jesus in action, and if Jesus by Luke is being presented to us as a picture of what God is like, um, there's a couple things we can kind of pull out of there. That um, number one, you know, think back to those temptation stories. Jesus is very faithful to um, you know the religion and the God um, of Israel. I mean, he resists temptation to get what he wants. Um, what he might want in the moment, you know, bread, power of, you know, a big sign from God, um, when those aren't the right things to, to take or to have or to ask for. So he doesn't want to break the fast before it's time by eating bread. He doesn't want to take over the world, you know, by going in rebellion against God and conquesting over people. Um, and he doesn't want to test God. So he, he kind of is very faithful. He, he wins in those temptation moments in where, um, Israel is a community, even in the midst of the Exodus story or, um, or Adam as kind of the first person, um, fails in the midst of temptation. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and if Jesus is like that and Jesus is God, it's kind of interesting to think about God being faithful, in that way, kind of um, sticking to what he's supposed to do. Um, and I guess that would be faithful to himself, or at least you could say the son is very faithful um, to the, the father. Um, it, it's going to be hard from here on out not to get into Trinitarian language. Um, and I'll I'll try not to put that in there too much when it's not there in Luke, but it is here in Luke because he is the son and, and he talks to God. Um, and God even identifies him as his son in whom he's well pleased earlier in the story. So I'm going to stop apologizing for that so much. Um, but if it drives you nuts, I'm sorry. That's kind of what's there in the text. Um, what else is God like? God is interested in saving people. There is a plan for salvation, you know, like, like Jesus is the one, you know, anointed the spirit is upon him. Um, and he speaks in the language of a, of a savior. Um, but let's kind of pick apart what the salvation plan is according to God. Um, it's because it's surprisingly present moment oriented. A lot of religion, um, over the years kind of gets kind of focused on very future afterlifey moments. And that happens not just in, um, the Christian religion, but in, in, in the Hebrew religion in um, in other religions from throughout the world as well. Sometimes they become much more focused on, you know, what's to come in the future or what's to come after people die or something like that. Um, but, um, at least as it's presented here in Luke four, the salvation plan is very present moment oriented. Um, you know, it's, it's Jesus getting up and saying, I am here to show favor, to declare the year of the Lord's favor, to declare a Jubilee year for certain groups of people's benefit, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, um, the people that seem to be getting the worst from life in this world right now. I'm going to declare this to be a time when they are now getting special favor or goodness from God. Um, he's instituting something new in the present. And later on, he's going actually going to start using code language for that in Luke as the kingdom of God. Um, that term got, got tossed out here um, as of Luke 4, and we're going to continue to use it throughout the rest of the story. Maybe we'll talk more about that in the future. Um, but it is very justice-oriented. It's this jubilee language of this is what God's sense of justice is. And we need to kind of be careful of that because the, when we use the word justice in this sense, um, it's not so much about um, evening out the scales, you know, so that way everyone gets something fair. It's actually about tipping the scales in favor of the people who need help the most, people who God seems to be closest to, um, people on the bottom, people out in the wilderness, people who are in the most need, people who are hungry, people who are blind, people who are oppressed, people who are in prison, stuff like that. Um, and that's very interesting. That seems to be in Luke 4 what God's sense of justice is and what God's program for saving people in the world is going to be. Um, and in that sense, it's very community focused, but it's also very individually focused. So God is interested in saving, um, you know, kind of instituting a new idea of justice in the community, but in you know this jubilee year, but is also interested in individuals. As he travels, he's going to exercise demons from particular people um, who are being possessed, and he's going to heal people, like particular individual people who need healing. And in that way, um, his mission is also lived out and made made real in the world. So that's kind of interesting. So that's kind of what God is like. He's interested in saving people, particular people who are in the most need. Um, he's interested in creating justice in the world, and he's interested in being kind of faithful 
um, to, um, to either himself or to the way of, of just what's right in the world. Um, so question two, lo-fi question number two, what are people like? Um, they're tempted. <laughs> um, in this story, you know, Jesus, who's also, who's on one hand, um, full, you know, is, is God, is the son of God. He's also, you know, the son of Mary. He's very human. Um, he's tempted by his stomach. He's tempted to take power over other people. He's tempted to worship other gods, you know, and he's tempted to, um, test God by means of getting God to show up and, and do something big, you know, show a sign, do something flashy in front of a lot of other people. And that's just in the book of Luke. That's what people are like. People are tempted right and left, you know? Um, and, uh, what's interesting is that, you know, um, Jesus, you know, kind of wins, at least in these temptations, you know, whereas a lot of other people don't, um, what else are people like in this, in this part of the story? Um, the people struggle with their sense of social identity and how that relates to God. Um, and in fact, can find that their their the way they hold tightly kind of their their identity as people and their social identity can actually conflict with them experiencing God in their midst. Um, so you have this this kind of sad story of Jesus in his hometown getting into conflict with um, people the people in Nazareth, and it kind of seems to be centered on this conflict of. Um, you know, Jesus is like, I'm going to go do really good things for other people. And you guys aren't going to really get it because I'm kind of too ordinary for you. You, you maybe know me too well. And that causes this big conflict. And it seems to be that sometimes people make God our God as, you know, or their God, as opposed to God being everyone's God. Um, they kind of see themselves as being, well, we are God's people as opposed to everyone. And so when Jesus points out that he's going to go be good to people that are beyond their concept of who God's people are, they get really upset. Um, and, uh, unfortunately sometimes, at least in the book of Luke, Luke is saying sometimes people get so upset with God being good to other people and maybe not necessarily to them that they'd rather kill the people who are doing good. And they'd end up opposing God because those people aren't primarily interested in benefiting them. That's what people are like sometimes. At least that's what Luke is telling us that people are like in Luke 4. Um, and it's interesting that Luke is pointing out that these are the people who should know God most. They're the people who know Jesus the most so far of anyone in the story. He hasn't traveled around and done very much. The people in Nazareth should be the people that know most. They're, I mean, some people got to live in God's neighborhood for a while and they end up being the first people in line to oppose him. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, whereas in Capernaum, everyone's amazed, you know, that, that key word for Luke. They're able to kind of see beyond the surface a bit because they're less familiar with him and they're able to be surprised. And yet, um, even at the end of the story, they try and keep Jesus for themselves. Once God does something good, they want to keep him in their hometown and make him their God, you know, their Messiah, you know, in a sense. And you can't really blame them because they're probably people who have real needs. Um, but there's a danger, Luke is telling us in the story, that sometimes people don't let God go where God wants to go. And we try and kind of put control over God. Maybe we even try and manipulate God a little bit. That's kind of what people are like in Luke 4. Um, people want God to be theirs primarily. And sometimes that means that they don't want God to be someone else's. Interesting. And uh, lo-fi question number three, why this story? Why do we think people um, kept this story? Why do we think Luke made sure that these stories made it into the, into his book? Why do we think that maybe he kind of held on to them over time and held up this story as being like, this is what God is most like, and so that's why we want to make sure it stays in the canon? Um, well, you know, in the temptation stories, Jesus kind of is becomes an example for people. Um, so he says no to, you know, the way of selfishness. He says no to gaining power through poor means, um, or having power over other people. Um, he says no to setting up a situation where he would test or try and prove God or try and make God do something. Um, and so maybe people just kept around this story or Luke just liked the story because he was like, oh, Jesus, here is a really good role model for how, um, people can or should be, um, Idea number two, uh, maybe, uh, you know, this story present does present Jesus as a savior over and against evil. Remember, if Luke and his audience actually believed, you know, that there is an embodiment of evil in the world. Like there's a devil and he is going around in active rebellion against God and he has power to influence people, power to possess people, power to maybe do some really bad things in the world. 
it's good for them to know that, well, there was Jesus and he, he kind of can win, you know, in this conflict, um, that, uh, the devil's not too strong to stop Jesus from doing what God wants to do in the world. Um, and so it would be a good story for people just to know that if there is evil in the world, they wanted to know that they probably want to know that God could handle it. Remember these people in Luke's audience at Luke's time, um, you know, have probably experienced a lot of tragedy themselves. You know, there are a lot of them, especially if they're Jewish, you know, are living in a post-apocalyptic situation where, you know, their country has been overtaken and their temple has been destroyed and stuff like that. It's probably good for them to be reminded that, you know, God has a handle on things and that, uh, that God can win in, in, in debate and in conquest over evil. Um, so that's probably, that could be a reason why they kept, you know, this story around. Um, and um, as Jesus goes around it and and, set, and talks about what his mission is in the rest of the world, um, it's probably a good story for them to keep around um, because maybe it was just a simple good reminder for them that this is what God wants, this is what God wants in the world, this is what God is doing in the world, and if we are going to be God's people, this is them talking um, in the world, and this is what they should be about as well. So, um, you know, Jesus was all about serving the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And they want to maybe remember that that are specific things that God is interested in doing in the world, maybe as they follow God's example and go out and serve others and try and create that kind of world in which those people experience God's favor um, in their present day. Remember, it's also very present day oriented, which is really interesting. And maybe these stories served for them as just a reminder to not make God a tribal God. Um, that God wants to go to other cities as well um, to, to bring the good news. Um, maybe those are all good reminders for them. Maybe they saw those as, as good things that they need to remember if they're going to go forward. So um, I think, let me turn the last page of my notes. Yep, that's it. That's it for today. You made it. Wow, that was a dense episode. We got the, the devil and demons and history and fasting and synagogues and all kinds of stuff. But if you made it all the way to the end and you're hearing my words now, then... Woo, good for you. We did it together, you guys. Um, I'm having a lot of fun doing this podcast. I hope you are too. I look forward to uh, what's coming up next in Luke 5. So thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you soon. Well, that's the end of episode zero, but don't go yet. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review... Subscribe and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again. So at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.